Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Come on, let us through! The press deserves a right to a story. Absolutely not. Stay behind the police tape. Give us something! How did Mr. Rubenstein die? Are you the man in charge here? I am, you shameless stringer. Stringer? Maybe. Shameless? My priest wouldn't agree. And you are? Edward Feely, Deputy Chief Inspector, East Manhattan. I heard he was strangled, but the Post reporter said it was a shooting. We need the facts here, but they aren't facts until they're confirmed. I have no comment at this time. Oh, come on. Just tell us. Was Sergei Rubenstein shot or strangled? Strangled. Other than that, I have no comment. And that's my God-given right. Chief Inspector, before you go. What? Did the butler do it? (laughs) This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our second episode on Sergei Rubenstein. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Uh, Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. On January 27, 1955, the deceased body of Sergei Rubinstein, international financier and notorious Wall Street wizard, was found by his butler, William Mortar. Sergei's hands and feet had been tied with cords from his Venetian blinds, and strong adhesive tape had been wrapped around his mouth and throat. From the very beginning, the investigation suffered from having too many credible suspects. Over the course of his life, Sergei garnered a slew of enemies from his shady business deals in the U.S. and abroad. One of these deals involved the Chosen Corporation, which controlled gold mines in Korea. After secretly selling the mines to a Japanese company, Sergei cheated stockholders out of their share. One of these stockholders was his own brother, Andre, who died in 1943 from kidney failure. While Andre was in the hospital, Sergei had refused to help him financially or otherwise. Andre's wife, Valerie, struggling to make ends meet at the time of Sergei's death, had still been trying to sue Sergei for that money. Others were also after him for money including Texas oil tycoon Odie Seagraves, who hired known thug Manny Lester to threaten Sergei with physical violence. If that wasn't enough, Sergei made enemies of both the U.S. and French governments. He was kicked out of France in his younger years for fund manipulation and served time in a Pennsylvania prison for dodging the draft during World War II. Now he was lying on his bedroom floor in his Mandarin silk pajamas, Dead as a doornail. New York City Police Department. I'm calling from 814 Fifth Avenue. 
A man is dead. He's all tied up and has tape over his face. It's murder. It has to be. As the call came in from Sergei's handyman, James Moss, a Journal American reporter by the name of Richard Paperno was doing what he did most mornings. Inside an apartment which had been converted into a small newspaper office, Paperno was listening at a window across from the police headquarters. The hope was he would overhear a call that would lead to a promising story. This is dispatch, signal 32 at 814 5th Avenue. Signal 32 meant homicide. This was a common signal for Harlem or other crime-ridden areas of New York, but not for Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue was known as Millionaire's Row because it was the richest area of New York. Piperno alerted the Associated Press and a bulletin went out about a murder at Sergei Rubinstein's three-story apartment. On the same day of the murder, January 27, 1955, reporters and TV cameramen rushed to the scene. As they gathered in a tizzy, the crowd grew to about 75 people, and they were all desperate to get upstairs. But the police had taped off the area and were guarding the staircase. The newsmen could stay on the condition that they remained on the ground floor. The man in charge of solving the case was veteran detective Edward Feely, who commanded all detectives within the Manhattan East District. At 54 years old, Feely had been with the force a whopping 25 years when this case landed on his desk. Chief Inspector? Detective. I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of it. Junkies dumped in the river, young thugs who've had shotguns emptied into their chests, masochists who've asked women on the street to beat them with whips. It ain't pretty, Detective, but it's common. Sad truth of it. But this... A Wall Street banker strangled in his home? Not common. Nothing about this case is going to be easy. I can guarantee you that. Which means we are required to go beyond the norm. That includes how we approach this investigation. Yes, sir. Who was the last person to see the victim alive? According to his business associate, Teddy Schultz, it was Estelle Gardner. All right. Take a couple detectives to her address and see what you can find out. On that same day, January 27th, Feely's detectives went to question Estelle, and police commissioner Francis Adams came down to the crime scene. That's how high-profile this case was. Commissioner. Feely, you want to bring me up to speed? Victim was apparently choked. His hands were tied with cord from Venetian blinds, but not very tight. And his hands were tied in front of him, see? I've never seen that before. Me neither. You tie someone's hands, you put them behind his back. Legs are tied, too. Yeah, but not very tight, either. Ah, oh, that's a lot of tape. There's a bet going to see how much was used. Some are guessing around six feet or so. You think there was some funny stuff going on in here? Some sex business? The rope-using kind? Well, there has been some talk of his, uh, adventurous nightlife. He's supposedly been with many women. We'll need to talk to as many of them as possible. While Feely organized a massive interrogation process for Sergei's contacts, he also ordered that Sergei's body be taken to the medical examiner for a proper autopsy, all on the same day as the January 27th murder. Detectives then interviewed the woman who was the last known person to see Sergei alive, Estelle Gardner. Is everything all right, ma'am? I'm still not fully awake. Sorry for the state I'm in. No apologies necessary. 
We know this is a delicate time for you. Can you tell us when you last saw Sergei? Late in the evening. Around 1.30, I think. So it was morning then? My god, it was. It was this morning. He gave me money for a cab and I waited alone for a while. Could someone have been watching? Waiting until I left? We don't know, ma'am. How long were you waiting? A few minutes, I suppose. How much did the cab cost? The cab? Oh, it was a dollar thirty. Including tip? Yes. I took it out of the five dollars Sergei gave me. Mind if you show us your wallet? My wallet? We'd like to count the money. The detectives found $3.70 in Estelle's purse, so the cab details were accurate. Do you remember, was the front door left open when Sergei went back inside? I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. I was looking for a taxi, so I didn't watch him go in. Estelle's story had checked out so far. They couldn't find evidence to either clear her or indict her as a suspect but they used her information to continue the investigation. Several detectives from precincts all over New York began questioning more than 100 cab companies, well, not to mention cabbies who had been on duty the morning of Sergei's death. But Estelle's cab driver couldn't be found. He had disappeared. But there were plenty more suspects to take his place, including some who had threatened him before. And we'll cover these suspects and more after this. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. Sergei Rubinstein's body was removed from the crime scene on January 27, 1955, the same morning he was murdered. The members of the press who had swarmed to Sergei's Fifth Avenue apartment were getting antsy. To appease the press, Detective Edward Feely came up with an unusual solution and allowed the officers to organize a lottery of sorts. Everyone put your name in the hat. That's it. Hey, only one piece of paper. Pass it around. Let's go. Mine's the one with the red mark on it, officer. I'll make sure not to pick that one. Jeez, it was a joke. I will choose two names from this hat. Once chosen, you will be led upstairs to the crime scene. You will have two minutes to look around. Do not touch anything. And no writing anything down. The first lucky winner is... The officer called two names. One was a reporter from the Mirror, the other from the Post. Here you are, gentlemen. Remember, two minutes starts now. Oh, my God. 
The two reporters surveyed the crime scene, trying to notice as many details as they could. There were framed prints of English hunting scenes on the walls, a thick green rug, and... Look at that photo. Who's he dressed as? Is that Napoleon? Sure is. Like the investigators, the reporters searched for evidence that could give them some kind of answer. But evidence was practically absent from the crime scene. Instead, they found a framed picture of Sergei at one of his lavish costume parties dressed as Napoleon Bonaparte. This picture would be published in newspapers and remains one of the most famous photos ever taken of Sergei, mainly because it was part of the crime scene. News of Sergei's death was spreading fast. Across town, Valerie, Sergei's estranged sister-in-law, came downstairs to take a phone call from a close friend. Hello? Valerie, did you hear? Hear what? Sergei was murdered. He was found dead in his bedroom. Didn't I tell you he'd get what was coming to him? Valerie? Are you there? That's not possible. It happened. It really did. Aren't you happy? Yes. Oh, yes. Valerie was ecstatic that Sergei had finally gotten his comeuppance for allowing his brother to die. She spread the word to as many people as she could, and others soon started talking about Sergei's death the same day that he died. Word eventually got to Betty, twin sister to Sergei's ex-wife Lorette, who shared the news with her sister. Now, Lorette couldn't believe it, and she began rambling on. He's the first person who's died. What do you mean? We're 32. No one that we knew has ever died before. Not someone close to us. How did no one die before? Like Lorette, many others were shocked to hear the news, but none were heartbroken. The only person who seemed to miss him was his mother, Stella, who began immediately organizing the funeral for her dead son. She reached out to Rabbi Julius Mark of Temple Emmanuel, the synagogue she frequented, but he did not want to be a part of the service. He knew of Sergei's reputation. However, Stella begged him to give a eulogy, and she got her way. Sergei was laid to rest only a few days after his murder in a $6,000 bronze casket lined with satin. But in his own form of protest, Rabbi Mark decided to be brutally honest with his speech. The word paradox best describes the strangely complex, ambiguous, and unquestioned psychopathic personality of Sergei Rubinstein. He possessed a brilliant mind, but was utterly lacking in wisdom. He had a genius for acquiring wealth. He had never learned the simple lesson that money is a good servant, but a harsh master. He wanted love, but never knew that love must be earned and cannot be bought. He wanted security, a natural desire, but lacked what is more important, inner security. He feared death, because in his heart there was no faith. The closing to the eulogy was probably the gentlest part. Our hearts go out in understanding sympathy to his beloved and adoring mother. We pray that she may find comfort in the thought that her gifted, impetuous son now rests in peace. Several attendees were outraged by the rabbi's speech. Sergei's mother-in-law even cried out that those were horrible things to say. But they had been said, and there was no going back. As the funeral ended, the investigation continued. 
In the days following the 1955 murder, Chief Inspector Feely and his team began a rigorous process of interrogation as a slew of his ex-lovers and wronged women were brought in and questioned. Feely had perfected his approach over his long tenure with the NYPD, but his methods were a bit unusual. Feely never took notes when interrogating someone. His reasoning was that taking notes distracted, even inhibited, the person being questioned. His approach with each woman was fairly similar. Create a safe, relaxed environment that was more conducive to honesty. Feely and his team asked all sorts of questions regarding Sergei's habits with his lady visitors, but nothing promising seemed to come from all the questioning. Then the autopsy and evidence reports came in. Injury to the larynx, fracture of the hyoid bone and cricoid cartilage, scratches on two fingers, time of death between 4 and 5 a.m., cause of death, strangulation. And what of the evidence report? Fingerprinting specialists reported 18 different fingerprints at the crime scene. Six belonged to Sergei, six belonged to other members of the household, but the remaining six are unknown. We've also looked over the sheets of paper that were strewn across his desk. And? Many of them contain poems. By Sergei? No, one of his exes. A woman by the name of Pat Ray. Things didn't end well between them. She's on the list of people we're calling in. Move her to the top of the list. I want to speak to her now. If you'll recall, Pat Ray was one of Sergei's ex-girlfriends. He had drunkenly called her twice on the night of his murder. Given that she was one of the last people to speak to Sergei alive, she was interviewed early on in the investigation. Miss Ray. Chief Inspector. What was the nature of your relationship with the victim? We dated for a while, went to social engagements. Was he your boyfriend? Not officially. We were free to do as we pleased. How'd he feel about that? I thought he was fine. Thought? (sighs) I began seeing another man, and it seems Sergei wanted to know the details of my private life. Like he wanted control, even from afar. What do you mean? He recorded me. I'm sorry? He put a tape recorder under my mattress. Do you have the tape? Sorry, I misspoke. It wasn't a tape recorder. It was smaller. Tiny, actually. Some high-tech device. Do you have it? No. He played it for me. And for the man I was seeing. I never knew it existed until then. I'm sure your men will be able to find some like it somewhere in his apartment. I think he had several. And not just for his lovers. The force followed the trail of this wiretapping news and within a few days of the investigation, discovered that Sergei had procured a tiny but powerful battery-operated radio transmitter, which was only supposed to be issued to law enforcement. The device could operate on batteries for 10 days. He had placed it under Pat's bed springs and a private eye sat nearby in a car with a receiver and a recorder. The wiretapping scandal contributed to a theory about a prime suspect, Manny Lester, the man who hired two thugs to beat Sergei outside of his apartment. At the time, Lester was seeking money for Odie Seagraves, who claimed Sergei owed him money from a deal. If you'll recall, Sergei had a meeting with Manny in which Manny threatened Sergei with violence if he didn't pay. Sergei had secretly recorded the entire thing, and Lester was arrested on extortion charges. Could the ex-con have wreaked his revenge on the man who had him arrested? Feely and his team were more than a little curious to find out. 
Maybe it wasn't about revenge. Maybe it was a shakedown. What are you saying? Think about it. Manny and his boys never got their money. But Manny got a stint in prison. He didn't expect that. So maybe he got some guys together and they went to Sergei's place to rob the joint. But they needed his help to get to the good stuff in the safe. So what do they do? They wake him in his bed, shove a gun in his mouth, and force him to open the safe. But Sergei struggles, fights back, so they have no choice but to incapacitate him. Maybe they accidentally go too far and he suffocates. So then they make it look like a kidnapping, haphazardly tying up his hands and feet. This was the best theory they had to go on, so they sought out Lester, but instead found Lester's attorney less than a week into the investigation. The attorney told authorities that Lester was free on bail until his extortion trial, and that he was in California. It was true, and the alibi checked out. Manny Lester was in a hotel in California on January 27th, the morning of Sergei's murder. But still, could he have ordered the kidnapping or actual murder from afar? The investigators couldn't find any proof that he did, and soon eliminated Manny Lester as a suspect. However, the botched kidnapping theory was compelling enough that it made its way around the station. All this talk of an attempted kidnapping ploy caused one detective to come forward with information he now thought was pertinent about a week after the murder. Something just occurred to me. What is it? A few weeks back, I overheard a couple of men at a bar talking about some kidnapping schemes the chauffeur in Queens was cooking up. Man's name is Herman J. Schultz. Apparently, he was hoping to kidnap some powerful men and hold them for ransom. Sergei Rubinstein was on the list. We'll need a tail on this Herman fella. I'll make it happen. Surveillance was set up for Herman Schultz. Officers watched his every move. On February 15th, a little over two weeks after the murder, Feely acquired a warrant and had his men raid Herman's apartment. What have we got here? Thompson submachine gun, 45 automatic, loaded, 32 revolver, also loaded, a 38 and a box of ammunition, and two switchblades. They also found a file containing newspaper clippings all relating to Sergei's death. It looked like the New York investigators had found their man. They arrested Schultz the same day, but could never have predicted the bombshell he would drop during questioning. We'll hear more about this interrogation after this. And now, back to the story. Russian-born financier Sergei Rubinstein was found murdered the morning of January 27, 1955. The police had interviewed dozens of Sergei's jilted ex-lovers and even a man who had threatened to kill him, but nothing pointed to a definite suspect. Eventually, the investigation led to the theory that Sergei had been the victim of a botched kidnapping, and this reminded an unnamed detective about a kidnapping plot he had overheard weeks before. This plot was planned by a chauffeur named Herman Schultz. After a search of his home and the discovery of guns, ammunition, knives, and articles about Sergei's death, authorities brought Schultz in for questioning. Mr. Schultz, things aren't looking great for you right now. We have it on good authority that you were planning a kidnapping of Sergei Rubinstein, and now it looks like we have some evidence to prove it. That's what it looks like, sure. And I may have done it. But I didn't. Explain the evidence, then. Well, you see, 
I had made a list of people I was thinking of kidnapping and holding for ransom, and Rubenstein was going to be my first target. I had pretty much settled on him, but I couldn't do the job alone, so I sought out some people who might be interested. And you found a crew? Nah, just one guy, by the name of Elisano Troiani. Troiani? He's a small-time bookie. The plan was to sit with Rubenstein and make him call someone for a ransom. If the ransom came, we were going to take the money. If the ransom didn't come, we are going to take Rubenstein. The thing is, Troiani was arrested before we could pull it off. Arrested for what? Carrying a gun. Where is he now? Sing Sing. In February 1955, three weeks after the murder, investigators made a trip to the New York prison. They tried to interview Troiani, but he gave them nothing. So they kept grilling Schultz, but he just repeated what he had already told them. Well, they began to wonder if this kidnapping scheme, which was supposed to be carried out by Schultz and Troiani, was actually the work of some other mystery men. Maybe men Schultz had come to, but who declined to work with him? When asked about the newspaper clippings of Sergei's death, Schultz told the police he had saved the articles to show his friends that someone beat him to it. It wasn't him bragging about a kidnapping he carried out. It was more amazement that somebody else had the same idea. Investigators continued to pull at their kidnapping thread, but they only came up against a brick wall. And there were plenty of other theories to consider. Stanley T. Stanley, a stockbroker who had worked closely with Sergei, blamed something else. He's a twitchy little fella, isn't he? A bit pale, too. He looks nervous, Feely. I'll bring him in. Mr. Stanley, I'm Chief Inspector Feely. I'm gonna get right to it. You were one of Sergei's closest confidants. Did he ever tell you of anyone who may have had it out to harm him? Oh, it was a mob killing. What? I don't see how it could be anything else. Why do you say that? He made deals with powerful men, leaders in oil and finance. These deals weren't always friendly, you see. You mean Sergei cut some bad checks? He was a shark, but he was stupid. He thought he was invincible. But some of these men, they had uh, associates. People you don't want to cross. I could be next. In fact, I'm sure I am. No need to get excited, Mr. Stanley. I'm getting a gun permit. That's my legal right. Stanley was convinced it was a mob hit. There wasn't much evidence to support this theory, since it seems that there were no direct ties from Sergei's contacts to anyone involved in the mob. But maybe authorities simply couldn't find a connection. However, this doesn't mean that one didn't exist. Stanley may have been so paranoid that it killed him. He died a few months later of a heart attack. After the interview with Stanley turned up no definite leads, the investigation continued on, and so did the outrageous newspaper stories about Sergei's death. About a month after the murder in February or March of 1955, one reporter proposed the theory that Sergei had been attempting a new sex thrill. This theory suggested that Sergei had a woman tie him up and tape him before they engaged in intimacy, and in their tryst, he suffocated. Headlines went so far as to suggest new theories like, was Sergei killed for Dominican money deal? That one claimed Sergei was killed for speculating against Dominican Republic currency, that he was repeating the behavior that had gotten him kicked out of France. Another headline read, was Sergei in tavern after Estelle left? This theory proposed that Sergei went back out on the town after Estelle had gone home. 
The theory emerged because a television executive told a reporter he had seen Sergei in a pub around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of his death. But when investigators questioned the executive, he recanted his statement. The speculation and rumor-mongering of the press and the general public only further confused an already confounding case. Unreliable sources were out for some easy cash, selling tales to hungry columnists, and so the stories were endless. And so were the possible leads, until they all quickly became dead ends. After two months of a fruitless investigation, Sergei's mother sought out a medium to contact the spirit world for answers. Now, Mrs. Rubenstein, after I light this candle, I will be communicating with those in another realm. I may not seem like myself. Do not be alarmed. Okay. Sergei Rubenstein, I summon you to speak. Sergei, come forth and tell your mother who killed you. Do what the investigators cannot. Sergei, find us sitting here in this room and... Oh my. Mama! Mama! It is I, Sergei! Oh my God. Sergei, I'm here. Mama, I know who killed me. <gasps> tell them to look for the one... Yes? ...with the initials J.M. Sergei's mother, Stella Rubinstein, claimed that the voice she heard during the seance was, in fact, her son's. Her reasoning was that she was the only person who pronounced his name Sergei, while everyone else said Serge. She and the medium gave the information to the police, but they couldn't find a credible suspect who fit the initials J.M. As you can imagine, nothing came of this wild theory. As months turned into years and years turned into decades, hope for the case dwindled. The amount of investigators went down from over a hundred to just a few. Detectives investigated every possible tip that came in, but nothing substantial developed. Even today, the case is still considered open, with the New York police happy to consider any new evidence that might surface. But it seems the key to solving this case lies with the old evidence. There was still an unanswered question with the cab driver who drove Estelle Gardner and Sergei back to Sergei's apartment. He had never been located, and his disappearance and coincidental interaction with Sergei and Estelle seemed to point to something sinister, although a motive and identity are entirely lacking. Could this mysterious man have been Sergei's murderer? And then there was Valerie, his resentful sister-in-law the woman who admitted to being happy that he was dead. Maybe she wanted to avenge the death of Sergei's brother, Andre. But would she go as far as hiring someone to rob or kill Sergei? She was a grieving widow and trying hard to make ends meet as a single woman in the 50s. At the very least, money could have been a motivator for her. Then there was O.D.C. Graves, who had been at war with Sergei over hundreds of thousands of dollars from an oil deal. And there was Herman Schultz, the chauffeur who intended to kidnap and hold Sergei for ransom, but didn't get to do it in time, or so he claimed. Out of all the possibilities, I think an unnamed unknown killer is the real culprit. Schultz's testimony is such a crazy story, such a strange coincidence that part of me thinks it could be true, that Schultz and his accomplice planned on killing Sergei, but weren't able to. And in the meantime, some other person or persons did, if only those six fingerprints could have been identified. I wouldn't discount your theory, but 
I just think that Sergei made too many enemies in his life for his murder to not have been motivated by revenge. It may have been a kidnapping plot, but I think whoever did it wanted money that was owed to them. So I think O.D.C. Graves or Manny Lester had something to do with it, since they had threatened Sergei prior to his death. The actual men that physically tried to kidnap or harm Sergei could have been nameless thugs, but I think they were hired by Seagraves or Lester. Well, we aren't always going to agree. There are just too many possibilities with this case. Sergei's network of people was vast, and there were a lot of angry, bitter people whom he had wronged. One investigator was even quoted as saying, if you wanted to collect them all under one roof, you'd have to hire Madison Square Garden. The case was so notorious that in 1956, only a year after Sergei's death, RKO Pictures released the film Death of a Scoundrel. It was a rags-to-riches story about a Czech immigrant who uses wealthy women to get ahead. It starred George Sanders and Zsa Zsa Gabor. A one-movie poster promoting the film stated, His love affairs were fantastic. He took what he wanted from any woman as long as she could help him make a dollar. Another popular tagline read, He was the most hated man on earth, but he could have been one of the great men in history. Yikes. Sounds a little reminiscent of Rabbi Mark's eulogy at Sergei's funeral. Tough, but true. He may have been successful in terms of professional and monetary standards, but he couldn't maintain any real friendship or romantic relationship. That's right. His wife, brother, and sister-in-law couldn't stand him. Everything he gained in life was through the use of money or manipulation, often both at the same time. His massive marble tombstone in the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx reads, quote, To live in the hearts of those we love is not to die. When he was a child, Sergei dreamed of being a Grand Duke, but he ended up with titles such as Womanizer, Playboy, Con Man, and Draft Dodger. The once powerful and influential Wall Street wizard died alone in his bedroom, unable to take any of his money or possessions to the grave. What remains of Sergei Rubinstein is a reputation so blemished by his own actions and indiscretions that Rabbi Julius Mark chastised him posthumously for never learning the simple lesson that money is a good servant, but a harsh master. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallow and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. Unsolved Murders.